ಓಂ ಜಾಯಂತಿ ಮಂಗಳಾಕಾಲಿ ಭದ್ರಕಾಲಿ ಕಪಾಲಿನಿ ಓಂ ಓಂ ನಮ ಶಿವಾಯ ಸತತ ಪಂಚಕೃತ್ಯಾಧಾಯನೆ ಚಿದಾನಂದ ಘನ್ನ ಸ್ವಾತ್ಮ ಪರಮಾತವ ಭಾಸಿನೆ ಓಂ ಸ್ಯಾಲ್ಯೂಟೇಷನ್ಸ್ ಟು ಲೋಡ್ ಶಿವ ಹೂ ಇಸ್ ಎವರ್ in each and every moment performing his five acts of creation maintenance dissolution self revelation and self concealment salutations to that lord who is none other than my very own self awareness saturated with bliss om peace 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 good evening or in my case good morning So this is particularly exciting for me because today I get to have you all in my ancestral home it's good to be home and it's very special to me to be taking this class here in this place in which I've spent so many hours reading and meditating in the shade of the mango tree and praying at all the altars so I feel especially especially grateful to be able to speak to you from this place It's been about four years since I've come home. Though I'm reminded sometimes of how Swami Vivekananda, when he went to Alameda, someone said to him, Swami, you're in Alameda. And he laughed and he said, I might be paraphrasing, he said, no, Alameda is in me. So I've been driving everybody nuts with that joke. But in any case, it's good to be home. This morning I had gone to a temple and, you know, way before sunrise, it was storming, heavy rains. And to get to this temple, you have to go up a hill and there's like dense rain. jungle you know it's going up this hill it's muddy and there's jungle and then we get to the top of the hill ah i can't tell you how refreshing it was to see all the wild dogs roaming about in this kali temple and all the dogs roaming about and there was a chicken and there was a peacock i mean a rooster and the rooster would make it would make the sound and the dogs were rolling on the floor inside the temple and the priests are ringing the bell and all over the place before the sun had risen there were so many people of all ages there were little tiny girls there were older women there were aunties and uncles you know um in it's an indian way of saying older men and women and and many of them were sitting and doing japa meditating praying it's very beautiful and then one priest he was wearing a shirt with lord shiva on it and i'd said to him in tamil romba nalarukaya very nice shirt beautiful shirt and immediately he held his hands up in the air and his gaze turned upwards as if to say the shirt belongs to mother so beautiful so rapturous and uh as cat would say bells and smells anyway so visiting the temple this morning and and all of that i feel so happy there chandra ji has the shirt it was a little like that romba nalla rakaya and at this point he has to anyway so it's 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 especially sacred to me to be back and doubly exciting to be able to speak to you from this place i wish you could all be here but for now it's enough for you to hear the sounds um so welcome Welcome. And I think it's good too that today we're going to be t- taking up a very important and very foundational topic in our study of Paramadvaya, the, the, the non-duality of Lord Shiva. This discussion that we're going to have today by Mother's Grace, to me is quite mind-blowing. It's a singularity, in my understanding at least, regarding consciousness and its activities. And this perhaps is the one defining factor which distinguishes the non-duality of Lord Shiva from more classical forms of non-duality like Advaita Vedanta. However, as I said in the beginning of this series last week, um, my goal above all 
is as we point out the uniqueness of Kashmir Shaivism, which is the Shaiva exegesis of various masters in Kashmir between the 10th and 11th century. So while we discuss this, this tradition, this very complex and nuanced tradition called Kashmir Shaivism, while my intention is to show you what makes it unique, what makes it distinct, what makes it beautiful, apart from all the other different Indian spiritual traditions, I also want to show you above all that Sri Ramakrishna's life and teaching, Swami Vivekananda's life and teaching exemplifies this robust philosophy and that there is an ultimate ultimate terms, no difference between Advaita Vedanta and Kashmir Shaivism, except in terms of matter of poetics. And so ultimately, I want to show, by Mother's Grace, there's no actual difference, but insofar as a difference, or at least let's say a uniqueness can be pointed out, it has to do with what we're going to be talking about today, and that is the activities of consciousness. In Advaita Vedanta, as you'll discover in a moment, no activity is permitted. Consciousness doesn't do anything. Consciousness just is. It witnesses at the most. It doesn't create or maintain or destroy this creation being but an appearance and having no real existence. What need would there be for any act of creation, any act of maintenance, any act of dissolution? You don't have to dissolve what never came into being. You don't have to maintain what is only there as an appearance. Does the desert need to exert any kind of creative force to maintain the illusion of the mirage? No, there was no mirage. The mirage doesn't exist there except in our minds. The rope doesn't have to exert any shakti to create a snake, an illusion of a snake, that is. Because there is no snake there in the rope. There's only a snake here in my misperception of the snake. So I'm the one, in my ignorance, who created the snake, who created the mirage. Okay? And so... In Advaita Vedanta and classical Vedanta, there's not really any talk of consciousness doing the creating. The consciousness doesn't manifest itself as this world, doesn't embody itself as the 24 principles of Sankhya. It doesn't pour forth into existence anything. It just is, and in it appears what seems to be a world, right? That's Advaita Vedanta. Today, we're going to talk about something incredibly interesting, which in many ways is an aesthetic theory, is a poetic theory of art regarding consciousness. And we're going to say, and this is a proposition, that consciousness actually does engage in these acts of creation, maintenance, dissolution, and what's more, what's more, it does that in order to play this interesting game with itself called hide and seek. And this idea that consciousness does five things, it creates, maintains, destroys, hides itself from itself, and reveals itself to itself, this is a, perhaps the defining feature of Kashmir Shaivism. And by Shiva's grace, may we discuss that today. May we all be nourished together in this discussion, especially those of you who've been in the study of Advaita Vedanta for, for a very long time. This stuff is so, so juicy so life-giving and, and so inspiring. So the Advaita Vedantins in the room, I think will particularly enjoy this. I should have mentioned this yes, last week when we had our, our first lecture in this series. I, I, I said last week that those who have been studying Advaita Vedanta for a very long time will be very nourished by these discussions on Kashmir Shaivism. Then I realized um, I don't want to exclude anybody who's new to this. I might have given the impression last week that you need to have somewhat of a foundation in classical non-duality in Advaita Vedanta before you can come to Kashmir Shaivism. That's not entirely true. And in the course of our discussions together, I pray to mother that we can be as foundational as possible, return to basic principles such that those who are well-versed in the tradition and those who are just coming into the tradition, all will find nourishment and all will find something uh, suited for their level. So with that in mind, Let's just come to the very beginning of this lecture. See, not bad. Preamble was quick today. <laughs> Let's come to the beginning of this lecture and start where we left off last week. Last week, after discussing Swami Vivekananda and the message of Kashmir Shaivism here in America, we discussed, you know, also some other lineages like the Siddha Yoga lineage and how Sri Ramakrishna's lineage is very in keeping with this tradition. So we talked about all the various lineages in America. We talked about Kashmir Shaivism as it's misunderstood sometimes as an orgiastic centralist practice. So we gave a bunch of context and maybe a big bird's eye view picture 
of Kashmir Shaivism, of what we're going to discover together over the next several weeks. So now let's get into the specifics. What we did though, having discussed, oh my God, there's some kind of thing on the screen. Well, what can we do? What can be done about it? There's, there's a void. I don't know if you can see it. Anyway, <laughs> there's, a, there's a space opening up. And if you look closely enough, you'll be drawn into it. And the world, as you know, it will just, I don't know. I don't know if that's true. Anyway, I don't really know what is there. Okay, what to do. Anyway, so um, we left off, though, at the very end of that lecture with a key principle that's, that's unique in, in the study of non-duality. It's the start of the study of non-duality. And that is this distinguishing consciousness from its objects. If we do not win the victory there, um, no further progress can be made. This first victory must be made. And I stressed last week that if this is not made clear, then what will follow can be easily appropriated by the ego to turn into some kind of megalomania. So if this moment is not done with reverence, then the statement, Paramo Shivoham, I am the Supreme Shiva, will just be made by the ego. And it will set itself up as a mini, like, like a demigod. And, and that's setting yourself up for much failure, much disappointment, because it's a kind of humiliating thing to discover that the ego is not Paramashiva. I mean, it is, but not in the sense that we mean. Okay, so this is why this is the most important thing and we have to really attend to this. I should also stress that this discussion alone, not considering anything that we're going to say after this moment, this discussion alone is enough for a full-blown liberation from all forms of suffering. So if this point alone is grasped, one will be permanently saved, freed from all forms of suffering, physical and mental. So this is a particularly important part of the lecture. And this is the thrilling thing about non-duality, the discussion of non-duality. It gives us the possibility that here and now, in the next few moments, a shift can occur in our understanding that will permanently alter the way we experience ourselves and the world for the better. This shift, once it occurs, this simple kind of judo flip of understanding, once it occurs, it changes radically the way we suffer. And it changes all pain into just mere sensation. It changes all suffering into something that becomes quite enjoyable and nothing to get fussy about. You see, this one shift alone is worth everything. And therefore, it's worth emphasizing over and over and over again. And this shift is the movement away from the ego and towards consciousness. It's like, and let's give a metaphor. It's like when you're, you're in a dream and you're meditating. Sorry, you're in a dream. <laughs> you're in a dream and in the dream you have all of these dream friends and dream careers and there are dream buildings and there are dream trees and everything in the dream while you're dreaming and barring any lucid dreaming of course while you're dreaming in a typical mundane sort of way while you're dreaming all of it feels real to you and the the problems of the dream are real problems if you're sick in the dream that's something to be really worried about in the dream, you might have cystic fibrosis at, 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 at a hospital, you know, or in the dream, you might be running away from a serial killer. And, and I think the Vata constitution people in the room know what it's like to be running from things and falling from places. <laughs> I think there are a lot of Vatas in the room. But yeah, it all feels really serious and real and demanding of your attention. And you freak out about it during the dream because, and this is important, you really take yourself to be that fella who's running away from such and such, who's falling from this place. And, you know, all of that's happening because you really believe yourself to be that person. And also there are things that you want in the dream. So you're not just averse to things and afraid of things. You're also desirous of things. You crave things and you want to move towards those things which you crave. So in the dream, there is an active attempt to accrue things, to attain things, to move towards things. And so one does feel craving in a dream. One hankers after things in a dream. There are endeavors, so to speak. And, and those endeavors, importantly, feel real. They feel so important and they cause you 
great stress and you pull your dream hair out of your dream scalp in order to achieve those things in the dream. So all of this is going on. You're dreaming. You're having your mundane dream going through the motions. And then suddenly, as quickly as it came, the dream vanishes and you wake up to find yourself in the bed. And at that moment, this is a very important moment. It's a beautiful moment, actually. At that moment, as the dream is slowly fading away and as you enter into the corridor of deep sleep and emerge into the realm of waking, the remnants of the dream, as they fade away, leave you with this feeling of, wow, I can't believe I took all of that to be real. And, and sometimes this is a feeling of relief, right? It's, it's a, I would say in most cases, tremendous relief. All the problems you thought were so real only a few moments ago turned out to be nothing other than wispy dreamlike things that are even now quickly fading away, that are nothing to you. So the things that were so big of a deal only a moment ago are now in, in the safety of your bed, no big deal, are now nothing to you. Isn't that interesting? This phenomenon whereby you can go from a very real world with very real problems and very real things to gain. In, in a split second, you can go from that into the realization that what's it to me? It's nothing to me. It's not even that real. That moment is it's a key moment between realities, between the dream reality and between the waking reality. Now, from the point of view of waking, nothing you gained in the dream is really valuable. So all the money you would have made in the dream, it's not that valuable. You just can't really spend it. Say you won the lottery in the dream, like, so what? That's dream money. What's dream money to you from the point of view of waking? Maybe you lost a limb in the dream. So what? What's your dream body with its lack of a limb have to do with you in the waking? And, and maybe you, you, you had all these problems. You were sick or you were dying or you were getting old. So what? From the point of view of waking, none of that's really happening. Okay, now here's where it gets interesting. Obviously, when you go from a dream into waking, you're just transitioning from one kind of dream into another. You're transitioning from the dreaming dream into the waking dream. The problem with the waking dream is much like the dreaming dream, it too is full of its own troubles. So just like in the dream, you have things that you're afraid of. In the waking life, there are things that you're afraid of too. In the dream, you had things that you wanted. In the waking life, there are things that you want also. So while you might discover that what happened in the dream was not a big deal, you quickly enter into a new kind of big deal, which is your waking dream. So you're like, okay, I wasn't afraid of the tiger. There's no real tiger in my dream. However, taxes, uh, the deadline, uh, you know, and there are all these tigers of the waking dream, so to speak. Then in the dream, maybe you wanted like an apple. I don't know why you would want an apple, but maybe in that dream, that particular dream, you were craving this apple and you were climbing into people's orchards and dealing with all these kinds of things to get the apple. When you wake up, you say, what? That was so ridiculous. I don't want an apple, but I do want a raise. So going from the dream to the waking dream doesn't really change very much. You just go from one set of things that you don't like to another set of things that you don't like. One set of things that you do like to another set of things that you do not do like. So it's not like waking up from a dream is liberation in any real sense. And, and this is important. Dying is also not liberation in any real sense. Because if you die in this waking world, how are you to say that it's not just a transition into another dream? Because technically, when every dream ends, you die in that dream. The person that you were in that dream is no more. You've left behind that world. So if you die in this waking dream, who's to say, I think Hamlet, Prince of Denmark was making this point to sleep perchance to dream. Who's to say that you won't just enter into a new waking dream. So waking up from a dream into this waking dream and dying from this waking dream are no real solutions. However, this is key. Just as you woke up from the waking dream, sorry, from the dreaming dream into the waking dream, you can wake up from this into something else. And that waking up is as effortless is as natural, is as smooth, and is as instant as waking up from a dream is. And that can happen for us right now. So to get this shift that we've thus far been talking about, the shift from the waking self to consciousness, the movement from the ego to the background witness, the awareness, that shift 
is very much like the shift between a dream into waking reality. Do you feel the texture of that? And that can happen for us now. So let's take some time. Let's invest some time in zeroing in on this principle. And then we can continue. This principle is really foundational, not just to Kashmir Shaivism, but also to Advaita Vedanta. And the principle, as we articulated last week, is Anidam Chaitanyam. I'm going to put it in the chat again. Anidam Chaitanyam. This function is a kind of formula for us. As you will recall from last week's lecture, this formula was articulated by Shankaracharya's disciple, Padmapada. So Padmapada, one of the foremost disciples of Shankaracharya, defined consciousness in the following way. Consciousness is not this. Or uh, another way of saying this is, the definition of consciousness is not this consciousness. Okay, so what does that mean? This is a very, very important tool, and it can be used directly here and now to distinguish consciousness from its objects. If you're able to point something out in your experience, by definition, that thing cannot be consciousness. And why not? Because it is, according to this logic, the object in consciousness. It's what consciousness is aware of. It is not consciousness in and of itself. Consciousness is the faculty whereby you've become aware of it. So if I'm able to point out something, like if I'm able to say this bag, this bag, automatically I know this bag is not consciousness. Why? Because this bag is something that appears to consciousness. It itself cannot be consciousness any more than um, it is my eyeballs. You see, it's appearing to my eyeballs. It itself is not my eyeballs. So this is a very important and very simple principle. And once we understand it, miracles unfold for us. So I'll give you two further verses to stress this point. So already, as we said last week, and we spent some time here, so we don't need to rehash, but already, we already approach the world this way. We look around and we say, there's a world out there and I'm over here and I am distinct from the world out there. Why? Because the world presents itself to you as a this. In fact, in Sanskrit literature, often the world is referred to as just idam. You know, katam idam. It's just idam. What, what is this? This whole thing. Thisness. Uh, tatagata. You know, the tatata. The suchness. This whole world. Actually, that's, that's a very specific phrase, sorry. Um, that's used uniquely by the Buddhists in a different way, not to conflate the terms. But I get that sense of like the isness or the suchness of all of this presenting itself to me. It automatically feels to me as, an, as some other. And that's the way we treat it. And that's the only reason why there's fear and craving. There's another that threatens me, so I'm afraid of it. There's another that tempts me, so I crave it. So this otherness is at the root of fear and craving, which is at the root of all our mental disturbances and anxieties. So the world already presents itself as an other. My problem, though, is that when I look at the body and at, at the mind, I don't think that it's, an, it's, it's the other. I think that it's me. And I have set up this dichotomy between the world and me. Me here being some kind of composite between the body, mind, and ego. Now, the first step here in our discussion of Kashmir Shaivism is to notice that that is a mistake. That is an error. To say that this body and this mind is me would be akin to saying this whole world is me. But that's not intuitive. In, from where we're standing, when I look at the world, it presents itself to me as the other. It's appearing to me. It seems to be coming to me from outside in. So therefore, I intuitively make the distinction between me and the world. In just that same way, we should be able to intuit the distinction between me and the body and mind, which much like the world and its various objects also appear to me. So this is the first victory we must win together. And it can be won even here. There's my mom. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Drik Drishya Viveka is a 15th century text attributed to, uh, to, to the same author of Panchadashi, 
Vidyaranya Swami. And in that text, Vidyaranya Swami takes us through this beautiful thought experiment to make this point. He says, um, consider the subject and object and the relationship between the two. There's my father. Subject and object and the dichotomy between those two. So the subject, you, the one who exceed, experiences, and the object, that thing that you are seeing, are ever always distinct from one another. In fact, such a relationship as subject-object cannot occur unless there are two different things in a dialogue with one another. So I could not see this cup if I was the cup. The only reason I'm able to see the cup is because the cup is the other presenting itself to me, the conscious witnessing subject. So far, so good. And that's, as we said, already something I do with regards to the world. Now, what Vidirana Swami wants to point out in this wonderful text, Drigdashya Viveka, he wants to point out that in just the same way as this cup is appearing to me, so too are all of my sensations. So every single sensation that I experience is a this. I can point to it. I can say this pain in my knee, this taste in my mouth, this scratchy feeling in the back of my throat from being in the airplane for 19 hours. Like that feeling, like you can, you can say, you can you point to it and say, there it is. Isn't that obvious? Can you not locate right now sensations in your body? And, and, and the very fact that you can, the very fact that you can say this sensation, that alone is enough to show you the distinction between you and the body. And this is a miraculous discovery. To notice that I am something distinct from the body immediately solves all of my problems. It solves for old age, it solves for sickness, it solves for, for death, because these three things only happen to the body. And today I want to talk a little bit about this from the point of view of your loved ones, how it changes your fear about your loved ones dying, right? Because if I think I'm the body, I think other people are the body too. So if I think I'm the body, then the cravings of this body are very real to me. I'll be whipped this way and that by them. And the fears of this body, like old age, sickness, and death are also very real for me. But I also fear that for others. So I'm afraid of my loved ones getting old, getting sick and dying. But if I know that I am not the body, to the degree that I understand that, to that degree will I understand that about others. So if I know I'm not the body, it's clear to me that other people aren't the body either. And therefore, my mother can never really die. You know, even though she kicks the body, what's that to her? And what's that to me? Why should I grieve? Yes, what, what's there to grieve in the loss of my mother's body? insofar as I know that she's not my body. I mean, and, and insofar as I know I'm, I'm not my body, I know that she's not hers. So the feeling there would be like knowing that you're not your clothes. Isn't that obvious to you? Isn't it obvious to you that you're not your clothes? So similarly, you should know that you're not your body. Your body is just the sensation suit that you seem to be wearing. And at any time you can cast it off. And maybe if you didn't do your yoga, if you didn't drink your milk, if you didn't do your yoga, put on a new body maybe, right? Or, or at least Kashmir Shaivism will say, and maybe the gopis of Vrindavan will say, no, especially if you did do your yoga, then you can put on a new body, the body of love and sport with Krishna and Vrindavan or what have you. So in any case, um, imagine seeing your body as you would see your clothes. And this isn't to say you have complete hatred and, and, and condescension for the body. You can love your clothes and take care of it and make sure they're nice. It's just, you don't freak out if you have to put them in the laundry every now and then. If you have to take them off every now and then, you would resent having to keep them on the whole time. So being able to take off your clothes and put on new clothes and not freak out is a skill that we all of us, I hope, have. Um, and that's exactly how we should feel about this body. Knowing that it is not us allows us to understand that it, that's also true for our loved ones. So it would be like if my mother came down the stairs in a red sari, I would say, oh, cool, there she is in red sari. If she came down the stairs in a blue sari suddenly, all of a sudden, it would be weird for me to say, no, my mother died. Where's my mother in the red sari? Oh no, I've lost her. I grieve, I grieve, I mourn, I mourn. That would be ridiculous. It would be ridiculous for me to mourn the death of my mother just because she changed saris. Similarly, 
It would be ridiculous to mourn the death of bodies. See, insofar as the, the people that I love aren't bodies. How do I discover that? By discovering that I am not a body. How do I discover that I'm not a body? Well, by letting go of the ignorance and the illusion that you are. So the burden of proof is actually switched. So notice this is a very interesting thing in Advaita Vedanta. If you say, prove to me that I am not a body, Advaita Vedanta would say, prove to me that you are. Why is the burden of proof on us to say that you are a body? The burden of proof is on you to say that you are a body and you're never able to show it. You're never able to show that you are a body for various reasons. One, if you were a body or if the body was yours, you should have some more say as to when you died. But the body will be ripped away from you, whether you like it or not. What kind of ownership is that? Is it really your body if you have no say as to when it gets taken away? Secondly, if it really was your body, you would be actively maintaining it in each and every moment of your life. Are you doing that? No, your work ends at chewing, at selecting the sandwich at Starbucks. From that point on, the body takes over and it digests on its own. It respires on its own. It cycles blood on its own. All of that's happening autonomously and you have no part in any of it. And for the better. Because if you were to get involved in any of your uh, bodily processes, if you were the one actively maintaining the body, if you were the one actively maintaining pH levels in the mucus layer at the alveolar wall, actively moment by moment exchanging oxygen and carbon dioxide between the membranes, like if you were the one doing that, you'd be in the hospital very quickly. The hospital would get a lot of calls that day. So thank God we're not the ones who are running the body. The body more or less runs itself. And also I didn't really create it, neither did my parents. You know, broken condom was more responsible for it than really any active process. It's not like my parents know actively how to cause uh, fetus to, I don't know, turn into this, this very complex thing. So it's, it's very conception, it's maintenance, and it's dissolution is all happening seemingly on its own. So it's very hard to prove that it's my body. It's very hard to prove that I am this body too, insofar as it's a this. It appears to me. And so this Anidam Chaitanyam, this formula that consciousness is not this, is used here first and foremost to create a distinction between me and what I previously thought was me, my body. So far, so good. And now we can do the second step, which is to say, and this is the next thing Drik Drisha Viveka will do. After having shown us that we're not the body, they also go on to further prove that we're not the mind for exactly the same reason to say this thought, this emotion, this uh, memory, all of that implies the mind itself is an idam. Since Chaitanya is an idam, since consciousness is not this, I therefore can conclude that I am not the mind. The mind, like the body, like the world, appears to me. Mind here being a flow of thoughts, a flow of sensations, a flow of emotions. So I am not the mind. Finally, we come to the last stronghold. And this is where the battle is really won. And it's the hardest battle to win. And that's the stronghold of the ego. It's a very tricky thing. The ego itself is a very subtle thought. I am aware of it, but I'm so inextricably linked with it that it's almost impossible for me to see myself as something other than it. It likes to parade as the self, but it's not the self. There is something more fundamental to the ego than the ego. And that's what I am. Now, the ego ultimately in the final analysis, it too is a this. And therein comes meditation. So the role of meditation is to be able to verify all of this for yourself. Many of you can hear and now do it. You don't need meditation. Right now, you're able to understand what we're saying, be able to intuit the, the, this, this revelation that I am not the body, I am not the mind, I am not the ego, I am something else, something distinct. I am the witness of the ego, of the mind, of the body. That's what allows Shankara to sing with such delight. Manno buddhi ahankara chittani naham. I mean, 
so much joy there. He's saying, I am not the mind. I am not the intellect. I am not the ego. I am not the memory. <laughs> na vyoma bhumi, na tejo, na vayush. I'm not any of these elements. Chidananda ganna shivo. Sorry, Chidananda rupaha shivo. Ham shivo ham. I am Shiva. I am Shiva. I am consciousness saturated with bliss. So notice, consciousness, Shiva, to find Shiva requires first that we discover what Shiva is not. So this is the first step of Kashmir Shaivism. Many of you who've been studying these philosophies for a long time know that this is just Sankhya. The ability to distinguish consciousness from its objects, Purusha from Prakriti, is just Sankhya. The extrication of the witness from that which is witnessing is just Sankhya. And thus far, we've spoken entirely dualistically. And I don't care. It's If you can win this, then who needs any non-dual? Actually, this, this on its own is already so powerful. It gives you supreme peace. So how do you practice this? Well, let's first and foremost look at the benefits of realizing this. One is you don't grieve for the loss of your loved ones. As we said last week, that was Krishna's first teaching to Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita, his first Upanishad teaching. After get up and fight, you big ninny, after that teaching, he gives this, which is he who kills, he who thinks he's the killer and he who thinks he's killed, both are ignorant of the truth. Obviously, this is coming straight from the Kato Upanishad. And, and then he goes on to say, the wise mourn not for, not for either the living nor the dead, you know? So yes, Shiva is the unmanifest. See, so Shiva, this Shiva that we're going to be talking about in Kashmir Shaivism is for now, at least for our current purposes, it's not the body, it's not the mind, it's not the ego, it is that which witnesses all of these three things. Okay, so this is the most important thing. Shiva is one and the same with consciousness. So Shiva, that is consciousness, is by definition distinct from all that it is conscious of. The metaphor we gave last week is of the light shining upon objects. The light, though it illumines objects, though it makes objects visible, itself is transcendent to the objects, is a thing apart from that which it shines upon. And this is important because it means that what happens to the object does not happen to the light. So if I were to spill, as I often say, wine on the floor, I might need to clean the carpet, but I don't need to clean the light. If the light is shining on garbage, I don't worry that the light is going to get smelly, right? It would be ridiculous for me to think that the light becomes smelly by illumining garbage. It would be just as silly for me to think that the light becomes fragrant by illumining roses. The light is transcendent to both garbage and roses. It's wholly unaffected by that which it shines upon. Consider your consciousness now is nothing but this light that illumines various objects in a room. The room is the room of your experience. And in it, there are things, there are sensations, various pieces of furniture, which you call smells and taste. I hope I'm not drawing out this metaphor too much, but smells and taste and tapestries, that's the various sensations. Then there are smaller objects like pencils and book, books and things like that. Those are emotions and thoughts. These are all objects. These thoughts, these emotions, these sensations, none of them would be visible to you until you bring the light into that dark room. So this light of consciousness illumines a room full of objects. Virginia Woolf, a room of one's own, Advaita Vedanta version, a room full of objects. All a woman needs to be happy is consciousness and consciousness alone. Anyway, <laughs> so, right, <laughs> Virginia Woolf. Anyway, so this room full of objects, it's illumined by consciousness. Okay, all of it is illumined by consciousness. However, consciousness, this light that shines upon the objects, it's something other than, than that which it shines upon. And therein lies its strength, its power, its invulnerability, its beauty, its value. Is that invulnerability? It's that ability for it to shine on everything and not be affected at all by that which it shines upon. So in some sense, if we are to personify here, give me some poetic license, this emboldens light to shine on everything at once. It's not afraid of shining on certain things. 
It's not afraid to shine on garbage. Why not? Why is light not afraid to shine on garbage or broken glass or a dead body? Can anybody tell me why does light have no reservation in shining on these things? Yeah, and Tarama is right. Light is indiscriminate. It's, it's partial to none. It's equal to all. It shines on everything equally. It's open. It's spacious. Look at the quality of light. It illumines. It elevates. It ennobles. It delights. And it's also non-discriminating. It's equally shining on everything. Yeah, Lyric is exactly right. Thank you, Lyric Ma. Light um, is not affected by that which it shines upon. Perhaps that is its secret. It's made bold knowing that, if I may personify. It's, it's happy to shine on garbage and roses alike because it knows its invulnerability. It knows its innate purity cannot be threatened by shining on garbage or on roses. Okay, so obviously this is all a metaphor. Light is typically the word we use for consciousness in Shaivism. We call Shaivism, in, in Shaivism, we call consciousness Prakasha. Prakasha, and this is the first, I guess, Kashmir Shaiva word I'd like to place before you today. It's a very important word. I'll put it in the chat. Prakasha. You might have met Indian people named Prakash. Prakasha just means shining, light shining. Prakasha. So I'm going to put a few things in the chat and they all mean the same thing. Chaitanya, Sakshi, Chid, Chitti, Samyak. Hey, no, sorry. Samvit, sorry. Samyak means correct or proper. Samvit, um, what else? Can anybody give me more? Uh, Prakasha, Chaitanya, Sakshi, Chit, Chitti, Samvit, Brahman. Oh my God, that was horrible spelling there. Atman, and I think for our purposes, Shiva. Okay, Amanda's jumping ahead. That's true, that's true, but we haven't gotten there yet. Shiva. So note this, when we talk about Shiva in non-dual Shaivism, we're, ah, thank you, thank you, Purusha. There, give me another one. Nice one. So look at all these words that I put in the chat. These are all Sanskrit words and they all mean the same thing roughly with some nuances, but ultimately I think they all come up to the same thing. Prakasha. Prakasha. Itiesha prakasha. Te. Abhinava Gupta says all of this is just light shining. Prakasha. Light shining. Chaitanya. Consciousness. Sakshi. Witness. Chid. Consciousness. Chitti. Consciousness in the feminine singular. Samvit. Also consciousness. Brahman in the neuter. Um, Shiva in the masculine. Purusha in the masculine, um, Satchit Ananda, I guess, but I'm just going to stick with Chit here. So Chit, Chitti, Purusha, uh, Atman, Samvit, Chitti, Chit, Sakshi, Chaitanya. Okay, all of these mean the same thing. Now, Purusha and Atman, though, those are, there's something interesting. In, in Sanskrit, like Purusha just means guy or fellow. It doesn't automatically mean spirit. It's just because, uh, not quite. So all the Shakti, Vimarsha, Spanda, no, no, that's not yet. This is still too foundational a class to be discussing things like the Spanda and, and, and Shakti and Vimarsha. I'm still, I'm still just interested now in introducing him to Shiva. I'm not, we're not ready to meet his wife yet. Okay. We're not ready to even talk about his dance. Well, we might, I, I hope talk about his dance today, but that's a little further down the road. This, this is very fundamental. This is the basic thing to understand when studying Kashmir Shaivism. Shiva, the word Shiva is the same thing as consciousness, Chaitanya. So whenever we talk about Shiva, we're just talking about this light shining. This is important. What is that light? It's your very consciousness, the ability, no, I wouldn't say your consciousness, but the consciousness that you are, your faculty to illumine the various contents of your experience. So I hope we've been clear thus far that if your experience were likened to a room full of objects, the objects here being various sensations, thoughts, and emotions, then all of those would not be visible. You would not be aware of them if not for the light that shines upon them. That light is called prakasha the shining forth of consciousness. It illumines things. And 
Importantly, just like light is unaffected by that which it illumines, so too are you, consciousness, unchanged, unperturbed, undisturbed, and unaffected by that which you are currently witnessing. Isn't this thrilling? What does this mean for you? It means that it's no big deal what's going on in the body. It's no big deal what's going on in the mind. Because what's happening in the body, what's happening in the mind, is not happening to you. Do you understand? What's happening in the body is not happening to you. What's happening in the mind is not happening to you. And if you could grok this, if you could understand this, that would give you what in Christian terms is the ability to live as a spirit and not as a man. I'm so taken up with the way Evagrius, you know, I think he said in one place that these monks, these desert fathers, the ascetics of early Christianity, they lived more as spirit than as men. Men are full of lust. They see things as like man, woman, they move towards women, the heterosexual ones, right? But these men... We couldn't understand why they were so lust-free when they were with women. They, 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 the women looked upon them as their own children or like as other women. They did not identify as women. They did not identify as men. They identified as spirit. You know, they lived more like spirit than as man. They were more identified with consciousness than with the objects of consciousness. So I'll just put it this way. For practical purposes, the more you live from the point of view of consciousness, the happier you will be for reasons I'm soon going to describe. But just generally speaking, the more you live from the point of view of the body and mind, the more suffering will be yours, will be your lot. Because the body gets old, the body gets sick, the body changes. Um, uh, ego, you could say, is part of the mind. It's, ego is like a subtle thought within the mind. Let's say it that way. Ego is one of the four components of the mind. You know, obviously, if this was a Sankhya class, like a true Sankhya class, and maybe that wouldn't be wholly out of place here, since Sankhya, historically speaking, is one of the foundational schools of Shaivism as a whole. But if this were truly a Sankhya class, you know, what we would do is we'd spend a half an hour to 45 minutes, if not an hour, listing out all the things in practice. Didn't we kind of do that last week? right? The five organs of perception, the five organs of action, the five tanmatras, the five mahabhutas. Then we talked about the mind with four things. It's got chitta, memory, it's got um, buddhi, it's got manas. Yes, all of that's very important because you know what we're doing? Basically, when we do that, we're, we're yeah, the cosmic principles, the tatwas, the 24 tatwas. You know, basically what we're doing is we're pointing out all the thises of our experience exhaustively. Exhaustively, there are 24 types of thisness. There is fire and, and, and earth and wind and, and, you know, all that stuff. So we're listing all of it for one reason only. And that is to say, I'm not any of it. Yeah, we're ontological window shopping. You see, a lot of the early philosophers in India and in many parts of the world were like systematizers in that they were looking to put things into categories. For instance, in Nyaya, you have seven categories of basic fundamental things. So Nyaya and Vaisheshika are pluralistic schools. They say there are seven things, the soul and God being two out of a set of, of seven things. Okay, and then in Sankhya, there are 24 things. These are the basic foundational experiences. They make up what we call this phenomenal world. Anyway, the point of listing all of this as exhaustively as possible is whatever your list looks like, the important thing is not your list. The important thing is your ability to like survey the list and say, ah, not me, ain't about it, not my monkey, not my circus. Right, I heard, is that the correct phrase? I heard it in America. Not my monkey, not my circus. I thought it was so cute. Not my monkey, not my sister. This, this is the, the, the wonderful peace that you gain from Sankhya. Just from realizing that you, consciousness, are distinct. Yes, not my circus, not my monkeys. Thank you. You just, you just have to know and intuit. And you could do it even now. Obviously, a lot of deep meditation is helpful here to be able to notice that consciousness it's not, is, is not its object. Obviously, if the mind is very busy and full of objects, you might not even notice the light. It's much easier to see a light shining on an empty room than to see the light shining upon stuffy hoarders like room so that's what meditation is for it's simplifying the room 
And in, in a moment of sensationlessness, thoughtlessness, emotionlessness, it's easy to perceive the independent quality of light as a thing apart from that which it shines upon. And that one glimpse is enough. It can come through meditation as in the tradition of yoga or as in the tradition of jnana, jnana yoga or Advaita Vedanta. It can happen here and now. Why not? There's no reason why right now we all together cannot intuit this distinction between me and that which I previously thought was me, consciousness, consciousness and the objects. Okay. So why is this helpful? One, because it, it should give you tremendous peace. You should just understand that the various changes on the level of the body and on the level of the mind are not changes in you. And therefore it's no big deal. Endure them patiently. O Bharata. Krishna tells Arjuna over and over like chill, you know, pain and pleasure arise from the contact of the senses with your sense objects. Like winter and cold, winter, the cold of winter or the heat of summer, they come and they go. Endure them patiently, O Bharata. Arjuna, relax. Endure them patiently. This plea to kind of patiently observe things can only come from this place of spirit. This idea that you are distinct from the things that you're witnessing and therefore just watch. Don't, don't be affected. Watch how these things go. And that isn't to say that the body doesn't go to the hospital when it's sick. Of course it would. It would seek out medical treatment where medical treatment is necessary. And all the while you watch that drama. That isn't to say the mind doesn't seek solutions for its various problems. I mean, this arguably, this is the solution to all of the problems. But if you were just able to sit and watch that whole drama, the drama would fade away. So this is the first thing to do, Sankhya. Now, that's one benefit, the tremendous peace that you get. The second benefit is you realize this is true not only of yourself, but of others. So as I kind of said earlier, you don't grieve quite as much. Because you know other people are not bodies and are not minds. So you know they too are not affected by what happens on the level of their body and their mind. Now that's one wonderful benefit. Now the third benefit, and this is a little more mysterious. There is something about consciousness, and meditators in the room will immediately understand this, but there is something about consciousness that is inherently blissful. It's as if consciousness and bliss were intrinsically linked in some mysterious way. The degree to which I feel happy is the degree to which I am conscious. And the degree to which I'm conscious is inversely proportional to the busyness of my mind and, and body, at least in the beginning. So if I'm moving around a lot, if I'm thinking a lot of thoughts, the degree to which that's happening, to that degree, I won't be aware. I mean, I, I'm obviously aware of thoughts and emotions, but I'm not aware of awareness itself. I'm not able to see the light because the light is occluded in some way by various objects that I'm fixated upon. But if I'm able to just sit still, quieten the mind, and for a few moments, rest in that spaciousness. It's immediate. I will sense a sort of joy, a sort of pleasure, a sort of meaning, a sort of profundity, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? That sweetness of simply being, which is only really apparent in glimpses here and there. Sometimes in a moment of rapture at a rave or staring at a sunset, during a first kiss or the first touch of barefoot on wet grass, the smell of rain, like these moments, these little moments, suddenly you notice there's a thoughtlessness, there's a spaciousness, and suddenly... You intuit this bliss, this joy that seems to be arising naturally from consciousness itself. So this is interesting. And this, this is a matter of perhaps experience more than philosophy. But it seems to be the case that consciousness is filled with bliss, is filled with joy. The more conscious I am, the more joy there will be in my experience. I think St. Paul was right to call this the peace that passeth all understanding because it makes no sense. It makes no sense why I'm so happy for no good reason. I mean, it's not like 
there's a, a cause for this happiness from without. It's not like something has entered into my experience that is suddenly making me happy. And notice, this is typically how we conceive of happiness. Something new entering into my experience or something in my experience being removed from my experience. These are the two ways in which I derive happiness. Something I want entering my experience makes me happy. Something I don't want leaving my experience makes me happy. But that happiness is so fragile because what comes quickly goes and what goes quickly comes back. <laughs> so that kind of happiness is very fraught. It's very feeble. And that's the kind of happiness that most of us are living off of. We're acclimated to that low quality fuel type of happiness. And then you discover this new happiness is way more elevated form of happiness that doesn't seem to depend on things coming in or things going out of my experience. Everything in my experience can be just the way that it is, but the degree to which that I can sense my separateness from it, that spacious ground in which I simply abide, the degree to which I can sense that is the degree to which I'm made happy for simply no reason. So my happiness is in direct proportion to my awareness. And my awareness is often, at least for beginners, in inverse proportion to the mind's business. Good formula. I, I don't know how to do the proportion signs on the keyboard. Maybe someone can do it. But my happiness, my feeling of joy, my self-satisfaction is um, directly proportional to the degree to which I'm aware. And by, by this, I mean aware of being aware. And that is inversely proportional to the busyness of my mind. Therefore, through much meditation, one realizes the inextricable nature of consciousness and bliss. So of course, I'm not talking about bliss in and of itself. I'm just talking about bliss as an experience, which is nothing but consciousness reflected in the mind, just to be technical with you. So this bliss that I feel, it seems to come from consciousness itself. Consciousness itself seems to be saturated with it. So here's the final benefit. So I've given you three. The first is peace. You get this tremendous peace knowing that what happens on the level of the body and what happens on the level of the mind is not happening to me. That's wonderful. That's one thing. The second thing is peace regarding your loved ones. You know that their death is not really the end of that person. So that really helps you with a lot of that. And thirdly, knowing this basically unites you to the greatest wealth of your life because you want to be happy. Everybody wants to be happy, but we're all of us going about it in the wrong way. We think that the way to be happy is to add things to our experience or to get rid of our experience. But here I'm saying as, as clearly as I can manage it, that that's not the way to be happy. You don't become happier by increasing your likes and de decreasing your dislikes. You actually become happier by realizing that your simple being, your simple aliveness, your simple awareness is itself the source of all bliss. So all the bliss that you ever experience in the world is just a pale reflection of the bliss of your being. So to simply be is happiness. To simply be is fulfillment. To be aware of being aware is itself the greatest joy. It's intoxicating. And so therefore in Kashmir Shaivism, often chid ananda, they get just conflated. If we say chid, we mean ananda. If we say ananda, we mean chid. But they seem to be two parts of one thing. So chid is consciousness. And consciousness on its own seems quite inert. Why would you just want to be aware? Why would you just want to be, right? Like imagine, oh, samadhi, just sit there and be. Like why would that be desirable to you? That looks like death. If not for this bliss component. If you just simply glimpse this, that's all you will want. You, you would become meditative overnight if you but touched one particle of joy as, as Swami Yogananda Giri likes to say, right? If, if even one particle of, of God consciousness touches you, the amount of joy in that far, so I, I, I'm, the, the word particle, I remember he used, I thought was quite nice. But just one bit, one, and, and Shankara, Sri Shankaracharya says, one spray of the ocean, even that will, will fill you with such joy. So you become meditative overnight once you sense how much joy and bliss there is in simply being. So you can practice this and cultivate this by as many times as you can remember to do it by simply sitting 
and noticing the space between your breaths, noticing the space between the thoughts, bringing your attention to that you are aware as opposed to what you are aware of. So it doesn't matter what sensations or thoughts or emotions are arising. Become more interested in the context in which that content arises. Yeah, it's surrender. It's surrendering and just being. I think that's a great uh, equivalence, Timothy. This feeling of just being here and being alive and, and being aware and being aware of being aware of that alone as you practice it, as you cultivate it, will allow for a deepening of your, your fulfillment and your joy and your experience. So to that end, Chid Ananda, just go together. Is that so far so good? Chid Ananda. Chid and Ananda go together. So this is rather foundational. Consciousness is naturally full of bliss, is saturated by bliss. It is bliss itself. So we often say in Kashmir Shaivism, Chid Ananda Ghanna. Consciousness saturated with bliss or permeated with bliss or filled with bliss. They're always hand in hand. So Shiva, let's look at the word Shiva. Thus far, I've said that Shiva means consciousness, right? But actually, etymologically, Shiva means blessing. It means auspicious. It means goodness. So it has that connotation of bliss. Um, in the Mandukya Upanishad, it says, Shantam Shivam Advaitam. This self that you are, this thing distinct from your waking self, from your dreaming self, from your deep sleep self, this thing distinct from the waking world and the dreamer's world and the deep sleep no world, I guess. This thing, or rather this no thing, this not self, is Shantam, it's peace, it's Shivam, it's bliss, and it's uh, Advaitam, it's non-dual, it's only one. But we haven't got to non-duality yet. We're coming to it. We're coming to non-duality. Okay, so for now, all we've done is establish, establish Sankhya. That Shiva is a thing apart from that which it witnesses. That light is something other than the objects it shines upon. I cannot stress this enough and I'll never get tired of making this one point over and over and over because this is where enlightenment is. Just this feel, uh, literally, right? The, the understanding that I am not what I'm shining upon. So let me give you two verses. I think these can be helpful verses for you to keep in your back pocket and pull out the next time you're in pain or the next time you feel despair in the mind. One verse relates to the body. The other verse relates to the mind and they can be used as accordingly. So the first one is from chapter 15. It's verse four, chapter 15 of the Ashtavakra Sangita. I'm just going to put that in the chat. Ashtavakra Sangita. And I'll put it in the chat so you'll have it. Natvam deho, nate deho. I am you here. You are not the body and the body is not yours. Why? Because the body is an object. It's a this and consciousness is anidam. It's not this. Because I know that I am consciousness and I know that consciousness is not what consciousness is aware of. Therefore, I can say I'm not the body since I'm aware of the body. So you are not the body and the body is not yours. Affirm this, the wonderful affirmation to make, especially in the midst of lust or in the midst of greed or in the midst of pain and, and physical suffering. You can say, I'm not the body. The body is not mine. Naham deho, name deho. Natvam deho, nate deho. I'm not the body. The body is not mine. The next line in this verse is karta bhokta Nava Bhavan. I am not the doer, nor am I the enjoyer of any karmas. Karta means doer, agent. I am not the agent. So this Timothy would be akin to surrender. The body breathes on its own, it digests on its own. I am not really that involved. The body is involved in maintaining the body. You know, by the way, sometimes when I share this on the internet, people get so angry. They're like, no, but I'm the one that chose to get this sandwich and I'm the one that's chewing it. And if I didn't get the sandwich, then this is all coming from a place of deep body identification. You know, and, and they feel like if I'm not the body, it means suddenly the body will just like stop. 
It just won't eat when it's hungry. It won't sleep when it's sleepy. No, no, no. It works when it's time to work. It eats when it's time to eat. It sleeps. All of that goes on. But you take one step back from all of that. If you're so bodily identified and I give you this teaching, you know what's going to happen? Your understanding of it will be, oh, then I'm just not going to do anything. Then I just won't eat. Then I just won't sleep. Then I just won't work. No, no, no. That's a poor understanding. You will work. You will eat. You will sleep. It's just you don't think that's you anymore. Okay. Just like how this whole world is happening by its own processes. So too, you just watch the body do its own thing. That's one. Then um, because the body is the agent, the body is the one acting. It's the one that reaps karmas, not you. And we, there's a whole discussion that we don't need to get into. Then once we've rejected, what is it? This is all the same verse. This, this whole thing, by the way, is verse four, four of chapter 15 of the Ashtavaka Sangita. Maybe I should just give you the whole verse and then, then we'll break it down. Natvam deho nate deho kartabhokta navabhavan chidruposi sadasakshi nirapeksha sukamchara. So, nat. What? Oh my God. What did I do? I did something weird. Okay, here we go. Natvam, Natvam Deho, Nate Deho, Karta Bhokta Navadavan. The next one is Chidrupo Si Sada Sakshi Nira Peksha Sukam Chara. Chidrupo Si. So what am I? I am consciousness, ever the witness, eternally free. Knowing this, I can be without expectation, I can move about happily. So this is a beautiful verse. Natvam Deho, Nate Deho. I am not the body. The body is not mine. Um, I am not the doer, nor am I the reaper of fruits of actions. I am ever free, ever the witness. I am consciousness through and through. Affirm this to yourself with the strength of a lion, lioness, lion person. Affirm this, you know, affirm this statement over and over and over. You've been hypnotized. You must now apply the dehypnotization, which is to say over and over and over, like as many times as I get deluded into thinking I'm the body, I have to snap out of it and say, ha, fool, I fell back into the dream. No, awake, arise. Right now, I should be able to say, I'm not the body, I'm not the mind. Never was, never will be. Fuck off, right? I have to have that strength. If I don't have that strength, I'll just be drawn back into illusion again and again and again. It's like that story that we love to tell in this tradition, Sri Ramakrishna lineage. Um, there's the, what do you call it? The lioness, the lion cub. And it gets, yeah, there it is. There it is. The lion cub. So there's a lioness and she's chasing this flock of sheep or whatever. And then um, she, she, in the exertion of chasing the sheep, she dies. But her last act is to give birth to this baby lion, lion cub. And the lion cub was born amongst lamb sheep so the sheep raised it as one of their own it licked it and suckled it and gave it food and taught it to be a sheep so this lion little cub grew up and thought it was a sheep so it walks around with its like sheep friends and it goes bleat 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 you know it thinks it's a sheep right and then you know what happens one day a lion comes by and notices there's this little lion cub i mean a young lion pretending to be a sheep how weird so in the deep dark of the night this older lion we'll call him the guru lion from now on caught hold of the deluded lion and the deluded lion is like bleed 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 i'm scared stop no leave me alone uh, because he thought it was a sheep right so this guru lion dragged him to the water and said quit your yapping you are not a sheep you are a lion look at the reflection in the water don't you see your face is the same as my face and this baby lion cub looked and he looked at his guru's face and he looked at that and he was like yes you see at first we we're very timid to admit that we're not the body yes and then the guru lion put meat in this lion's mouth and says, eat it, eat the meat, eat the meat. You are a lion, eat the meat. And the lion ate it. 
It was like, mm, okay, yeah, this is better than grass. And then the, the guru lion says, now roar. That's what it is in non-duality to be able to say, roar, roar, roar the statement. Natvam deho, natte deho. I refuse. I refuse to be uh, deluded like this. So that's that first statement. Natvam deho, natte deho. Bokta karta navabavan chidruposi salasakshi nirapekshas. Okay, we'll, we'll put that aside. Now the second one. Second, second one. I won't put it in the chat. We'll pick it up next week. This may be more important. This is real victory. Rago duesho mano dharmo. Um, no, I mean, I, mo most of them are vegetarian. Um, <laughs> that story comes from Sri Ramakrishna, um, Red. It's a Sri Ramakrishna story that Swami Vivekananda and Swami Ashokananda Ji especially was very fond of. But just this kind of lion-like affirmation, burst out of your cage, you know, roam about like a lion. Anyway, so this, this strength, this sort of virility to say I'm not the mind or not the body is very important. Now, you can do the same thing with the mind. Rago dvesho mano dharma, dharma. The dharma means property. So rago dvesho, likes and dislikes are properties of the mind only. Rago dvesho mano dharma. They are properties of the mind. Nirmanaste kadachana. The mind was never mine. Right? Nirvikalposi bhodatma. Nirvikara sukamchara. Therefore, be without change, recognizing yourself as the thoughtless free space of awareness. And therefore, move about happily. So notice, all of these verses end with sukamchara, sukamchara, move about happily, move about happily. You can only move about happily in this world once you've sloughed off the baggage of thinking you are the body and the mind. So this is the beginning of Shaivism. It sounds very sankhya, it sounds very neti neti, but Shaivism really starts with a negation, then an affirmation. A lot of people study Shaivism wrongly because they skip to the affirmation. They skip to saying, this is my mom. They skip to saying, I am the body, I am the mind. Shiva is everything. Yes, it's true. Shiva is all of this. This whole virat, this whole manifest world is nothing but the body of the Lord made manifest. So the real statement that Shaivism ends with is, I am this body, I am this mind, but I'm also all bodies and all minds. I am not this particular body and mind exclusively. I am all bodies and minds. And you know what? I'm also the cup and I'm also the steaming pile of shit. And I'm also the, you know, all of that. That statement to be able to say, I'm all of it. I'm all of this together. Um, that's the final statement. So to be able to say that everything that light shines upon is nothing other than light. Ah, now that's kind of the crowning glory of Shaivism. Everything that light shines upon is itself light. Iti esha prakashate. Everything, that's the crowd. But people skip to that. People want to go all the way to the end without getting a firm foundation in the beginning. This is the foundation. You must start with the negation to, to identify what consciousness is, and then you can identify that this alone is. But you must first identify what consciousness is. If you don't, if you fail here, you will misappropriate consciousness. And that's typically what happens, you know, to, to, to people who study this. So we won't make that mistake by Shiva's grace. We'll be able to say here now that consciousness is not that which is conscious of. So it's not the body. It's not the mind. It's not the ego. That's consciousness. And that is Shiva. And its very nature is bliss, is fulfillment, is, is freedom. So come Jala, you can move around happily. Okay, so we got that. We started with this. So I think thus far, here's what progress we've made. We've been able to identify that Shiva is consciousness. We've been able to identify that consciousness is not the objects 
of consciousness. And because of that, we're able to say Shiva is blessedness because it is bliss itself. There's something intrinsically blissful about Shiva. Now in Shaivism, bliss will be called Shakti as Claire has kind of um, intuited. Like bliss is the alive aspect of consciousness. So it's actually called this Ananda Shakti. It's called Shakti. It's the power of consciousness to be happy is something more akin to Shakti than to Shiva. But for now, I just wanted to make that preliminary observation that consciousness, bliss, and its objects Good, good lyric. I'm so happy. Yes. Consciousness and its objects are distinct. Okay. Now, Advaita will stop here and say, actually, sorry, Sankhya will stop here and say, that's it. What else do you need but to understand this? Advaita will, will maybe go further and say, well, the objects, those things that are seemingly other than you actually are nothing but appearances in you. And we'll, ad we'll, we'll advocate for that position next week. However, here's what Kashmir Shaivism will say. I'll just introduce it so you can kind of think about it over the course of this week um, because I want to end the lecture. So if you look at the Nataraja behind me, this is one of the fundamental images of Kashmir Shaivism. Often when you think of Kashmir Shaivism, this is the image that comes to mind. It's the dancing Shiva. What is Shiva? Consciousness. What does consciousness do? It dances. Consciousness is full of life. It's always moving. It's always dancing. So this is one way in which the Shiva of Advaita Vedanta, sorry, the Shiva of Shaivism is different from the Brahman of Advaita Vedanta. It's one of the reasons why many of the Kashmir Shaiva masters wanted to stay clear of using the word Brahman. Though ultimately it's the same thing. The word Brahman brings with it a connotation of uh, inertness, non-activity. Uh, whereas the word Shiva, it means consciousness, but it brings within it the, with it the con connotation of like activity and movement and, and expression, you see. So Shiva, what does Shiva do? Shiva dances. And the dance of Shiva expresses itself in five ways. One thing that Shiva does, meaning consciousness, one thing that consciousness does is that it creates. Another thing that it does is that it maintains. A third thing that it does is that it destroys. A fourth thing that it does is that it reveals itself to itself. And the fifth thing that it does is that it conceals itself to itself. Now, next week, we're going to have a whole discussion as to why this, this is actually what I want to talk about today, but we didn't get to it. So we'll do this next week. I want to give you the opportunity though to take this week and think about this. And next week, let's start by asking, you know, all of you to articulate why you think it is that consciousness does these five things. In what sense is it true to say that consciousness creates, consciousness maintains, consciousness destroys? In what sense is it true to say that consciousness uh, reveals itself to itself and uh, occludes itself from itself? That's your, I guess, homework a thought experiment, okay, for this, this coming week. Um, so let's leave it at that. Let me just chant and close this class. I'm very happy today. I think we achieved what needed to be achieved, and that is to explain what Shiva is as distinct from its object. So I'll just chant and, and end this. Om Namah Shivaya Satatam Panchakritya Vidhayane Chidananda Ghanaswatma Paramatava Bhasine Om, salutations to Lord Shiva, who is always performing the dance of creation, maintenance, dissolution, self-revelation, and self-concealment. Salutations to Shiva, who is nothing but awareness. Awareness saturated with joy, Chidananda Ghanna, who even now, even now, is my very own essence nature, Svatma, the self of myself. Lord, how can I be parted from you when you are the self of myself? Where can I go that you are not? 
Why do I run around looking for you here and there when you are the one who art looking? Lord, how deluded I have been to think that I have been separate from you. All the tears of despair that I cried being apart from you. Such delusion. How can I be apart from you, you who art really me? To that essence of essences, to that self of self, I offer this and all of my words. Om. May this be an offering. Om. Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Hari Om Tatsat. Shri Ramakrishna Arpanam Astu.